I don't know about you, but I wish that God would hit the fast forward button and get us there. Revelation chapter 21, if you have your Bibles or your iPads or whatever it is you use to look at the scriptures, in Revelation chapter 21. And I want to walk through this passage uh, carefully and uh, help you to see the, the basic thrust of it. In our view of the end time days, we believe that the next thing to happen in God's plan or the next thing that uh, there's nothing that has to happen before it is the rapture of the church. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to the upper taker, not the undertaker. I hope that would happen, but that's up to the Lord and his timing. But the Lord will come and rapture the church. And then a short time after that, perhaps, uh, we have the signing of the treaty between the Antichrist and Israel, which will kick off the seven-year tribulation period, at the end of which Jesus Christ will come. We talked about the passages yesterday for that. When he comes back and destroys his enemies and binds Satan for a thousand years. And then at the end of that, the great white throne judgment. So that thousand year period when Satan is bound is what we call the millennial kingdom or the millennial aspect of God's coming kingdom. I don't think it's all there is to God's coming kingdom. I think it's just the kickoff party. Because God's kingdom, according to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, lasts forever. And so God has a kingdom earthly kingdom that will go forever. And we'll see that in this text. I think that will help us to understand that. And at the end of that thousand years, there are some changes that take place. And we move into the eternal state, it's called, or the new heavens and new earth. And that's what this passage is about. So let's look at it. Uh, there's an outline that was given to you, I believe, and we'll try to follow this uh, carefully and give you some helpful information. Also make some practical application that will warm your heart along the way. Let's begin in verse 1, where we see the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, one of the interesting questions that emerges right away, is the new earth a totally separate planet? Does God, is the, you know, 2 Peter 3, for example, it talks about the elements melting in fervent heat. Is, it, is God dissolving or vaporizing the old earth and giving us a brand new planet, the new earth? My thoughts are no. One of the reasons is that we learned yesterday that destruction language, like we find in 2 Peter 3, does not mean vaporizing or ceasing to exist. We gave some examples. The Bible talks about the world being destroyed in the flood. But the world didn't cease to exist. And so destruction language is sometimes used to describe massive changes and overhaul of something. And what I think happens, if you look at Romans 8, Romans 8 says that the whole creation groans. It's interesting. Creation groans. See, Adam's sin didn't hurt just humans. It affected everything. There was a curse on everything. Houses left to themselves do what? Fall apart. Cars left to themselves fall apart. Humans die. Plants die. Animals die. 
Adam's sin has affected everything. And the Bible says the creation groans, awaiting its redemption. And vaporizing the old and giving the new, a brand new planet, is not redemption. Let me give an illustration. Your resurrection body that's coming, if you're a believer in Jesus, and if you die, God is going to raise you from the dead in a glorified body. Now the body He's going to raise you in has a relationship to the old body. Right? If He just gives you a brand new body and sticks the soul in it, that's not resurrection. He just gave you a new body. Same way with the old earth. I see it as a renovation, a restoration. Uh, It may change dimensions, who knows? Massive changes to be sure, but it is redemption of the old earth to produce the new. And the old that's passed away is this cursed earth as God makes all things new. But then it has that rather strange statement there, no more sea. I mean, do you like to go out and watch the ocean sometimes? I mean, you like lakes? You go, wait a minute. Does it say there's no bodies of water? We know from the next chapter that there are rivers. So if there are rivers, why can't there be bodies of water? Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. At the end of chapter 20, you have Satan deceiving the nations one last time. Gathering from the nations to go against God. And God puts that down. Jesus puts it down and destroys them once and forever. Well, who is the Antichrist earlier that he destroyed? But the beast who comes out of the what? Sea. What does that mean? It means he came out of the sea of nations out there in the Mediterranean world. Daniel makes that clear. The idea of sea there is symbolic of the nations that are heaving to and fro like the waves of the sea. And so I think here it means there, is no more, there are no more nations to stand against God. They've been destroyed as we saw in chapter 20. So you have a redeemed new heaven, new earth. Now we come to chapter 2. There is a new Jerusalem. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So the city comes from God. What is that city? I see the new Jerusalem as actually heaven. The abode of God. When you look at Hebrews chapter 12 it seems to be clear it's talking about the heavenly abode of God. And so this new Jerusalem that is is coming down out of heaven from God is His abode. And He's sending it down. Notice the description. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. As a minister, I've done weddings, and I've been to a lot of weddings. So have you. And I have yet to see an ugly bride. Now, if you have, don't tell me. I don't want you to mess me up. (laughs) 
I just have not seen it. They have a way of making themselves look good. And the point of this is the beauty of it, of the bride and the glowingness of this place. It's a place. And the illustration is used of a bride coming down the aisle to her husband. And God is sending this new Jerusalem down, this beautiful place. It's beyond description. In fact, later on in the text, it describes it. Uh, starts in verse 9, but then you come on down to verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it, it was 144 cubits thick. You know, cubits about 12 inches or so. You see how thick the walls are? Of course, the, the length and the width and the height of the city, uh, around 1,500 miles, 1,300, 1,400, 1,500 miles. It's a big place as well as a beautiful place. It talks about by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold. I mean, Oz doesn't beat this. As pure as glass, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. You know how much I had to practice to say all that. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And yesterday I talked about how that's an awfully big clam. <laughs> the great street of the city was of pure gold. They're the streets of gold, like transparent glass. The pearly gates and the streets of gold that our songs have echoed down through the years are not something that a songwriter made up. They're things that are in the text of the Bible. Are these just, this is just flowery language? Well, you know what? I believe that what that city will be for us can be more than what's here, but it cannot be less than what's here. God has a beautiful place planned for us. And I expect to walk on streets of gold, and I expect to look up at those pearly gates. God giving us a beautiful place. That's kind of our home within our home. See, that's a city that's on the new earth. I imagine we'll get to travel around so. But then, notice verse 3. God changes his address. In verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You go, wait a minute, wasn't he with us before? I want you to capture the seriousness of this. 
You know, right now, where's Jesus? Right now. Where is he? He's by the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's in our hearts through the Spirit. When the millennium comes, after the second coming, where's Jesus? He's on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Where's God the Father during the thousand years? Of course, he's everywhere. We understand that. But where's his abode? His abode, where he localizes his presence, is in heaven. Here, at the end of the millennium, when we go into the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal state, the fullness of the triune God comes down to earth. God brings himself, you know, in the abode of God, heaven is wherever God chooses to live. And make his home. And here the Bible says that he is coming down in his fullness to be with us, to live with us. Even that isn't true during the millennium. I mean, I can always go see Jesus in the millennium and talk to him. Maybe emails will be faster in those days, I don't know. Maybe I don't need text messaging. But in the new heavens and new earth, in the eternal state, God's presence will be so full for us that we can't even imagine what it means. And that leads to verse 4, which is my favorite verse in the Bible. My first sermon I ever preached as a young man, of course I'm still young, but my first sermon I preached over 30 years ago I pre- to a church, I preached on verse 4. I have a cassette tape. Do you know what a cassette tape is? Do we still know what cassette tapes are? I have a cassette tape with that sermon. It's, it's not very good. But I have always loved this verse. It's always been my favorite verse since the first time I laid eyes on it as a young Christian. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. During the thousand years of the millennium, a lot of that has passed away for some. But it's not been eliminated entirely because there's still death in the thousand years. But let's stop and meditate. Okay, just exactly what does this mean? I have a list of uh, almost 40 things that I want to run through. That's what this means in application for us. I've thrown in a few humorous ones uh, to kind of keep it from getting dry, but I want you to listen to the list. And you can maybe think about some other things. What does it mean for God to wipe away every tear from our eyes? Well, number one is no more funeral homes. Right? No more funerals. No more hospitals. No more ambulances. No more doctors and nurses. No more cancer. No more dentists. No more root canals. No more false teeth. No more bald heads. I kind of like that one. No more calls in the middle of the night. No more car accidents. No more bad news. No more rebellious children. 
No more teens that break your heart. No more parents that don't understand you. No more fights with your spouse. No more divorce. (laughs) No more marriage. If I understand the text right. No more Democrats. (laughs) Do you know what my next one is? No more Republicans. No more Green Party or Libertarians. No more politicians. No more political ads. Praise the Lord. And what that all means is no more lawyers. No more spinach that tastes like spinach. It's going to be fried chicken or chocolate ice cream taste. Yeah? No more wasps. At least the ones that sting. No more Down syndrome. No more Alzheimer's. No more Al-Qaeda terrorists. No more Arab-Israeli conflict. No more bad judges. No more abortion. No more missiles. No more bombs. No more war. No more death. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more curse. No more tears. No more broken hearts. That's what verse 4 means. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. In the next couple of verses, we, we see an application that's made to the church that's reading this book. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. Now Christ on the cross said, it is finished. It's a different Greek word here. But the first coming stuff is finished. And now the second coming and the, uh, the push and the end when God makes all things right, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And notice, to him who is thirsty... I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The most important words in that verse there, that section, is, are the words without cost. In other words, it doesn't cost anything. It is free to those who are thirsty. And I think he's talking about spiritually. Those who are spiritually thirsty, I will give to drink freely without cost. It's free. From the spring of the water of life. And of course that very imagery harkens back to John's gospel. The water of life that is Jesus. And so here we have an allusion to the gospel itself. Now I don't know you folks. Except I know Mark Henson really well. I'm still amazed that he graduated. Uh, (laughs) No actually Mark was a very very sharp student. But I like to have fun at his expense. Uh, he, he knows that too. I don't know you folks. I speak, and then I leave town. So I don't know who you are. You might be visiting. You might be a member that's struggling with things. But I know this, that the gospel is everything as far as eternal life is concerned. 
Jesus 2,000 years ago died on a cross, a Roman cross. He was crucified. Of course, a lot of guys were crucified by the Romans. What's unique about him? Well, he was God in the flesh, lived a perfect life. He was the perfect sacrifice, and God considered his work there in history, in time and space, what he did on the cross, God considered it payment for your sins and my sins. That was God's plan for you and I to get an uh, out-of-jail card free, a free out-of-jail out card. That we would be exempt from the punishment for our sin. We talked about that punishment yesterday at our conference. The eternal hell that the Bible does speak of. But God doesn't want us to go that direction. He wants us to trust Him. God is not willing that any should perish. And his message is clear. If you reach out and simply accept the free gift. See, it's a free gift. It's without cost. And if you're thirsty, if you're spiritually thirsty and reach out and accept what Jesus has done for you on the cross, that's called faith. God will forgive you of your sins. He'll come into your life through His Spirit, transform you, and you'll be a born-again Christian. And then all these things that are talked about here apply to you. But he adds something beyond that. Not only do you have forever life for those who are thirsty, you have inheritance for those who overcome. Look in verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. <clears throat> now, some might look at this and say, okay, this is saying that the, the ones who overcome, that is the ones who do good. The ones who do good will get all this. It's not by faith in Jesus. And this can be confusing to people. It was confusing to me for a long time when I was a young man growing up. I did not grow up in a Christian home. But I can remember when I was a teenager, I started reading various things. I read the autobiography of ben Benjamin Franklin that really messed me up because he was so works-oriented. And I, I started a little thing, and I had a little book, and I, I called it Turning Over a Good Leaf. I took that phrase very seriously. And I would actually mark down the time right from right now I'm going to start being good. And I mark it down. Sometimes I'd be proud of myself. I'd make it for an hour. <laughs> Sometimes I'd blow it in five minutes. And, okay, mark that out. Hour later I come back. Right now I'm going to start being good. You know, there are Christians who are like that. They don't be as silly as I was as a young teenage boy doing that. But they live like that. And it's got to be the most frustrating way to try to live. God doesn't intend for that. God wants you to be secure in Him so that you'll be free to minister to others. You can't be afraid every time you turn around that you might step in a ditch and blow it all. 
God loves you too much for that. And we know from 1 John that overcomers, in John's writings, an overcomer is one who has faith. So the inheritance here, all these things, who is the overcomer? The one who has faith. So what's in verse 6 is the same thing that's in verse 7. He who overcomes, that is, he who has faith, will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. God is good. His plans for us are great. And he has far more than we can imagine. But it is not for everybody. Unfortunately, there's verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Those who have faith in Jesus receive all these things, and those who do not have faith in Jesus who are categorized by who they are. You say, well, I I struggle with lying. I lie every now and then. And maybe you have a bad habit of lying. And maybe you've trusted the Lord and you still struggle with that. Does that mean you're in this list? No. Christians sometimes live like they're pagans. What he's saying here is, see, those who are Christians are those for whom the righteousness of Christ has been applied to their lives. So God never looks at the Christian as if he is cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, etc. It doesn't mean you can get away with that because God really takes us out to the woodshed in our lives. For Christians, I mean, to whom much is given, much is required. And God does intervene into life, this life, not the life to come, this life with Christians who turn their backs and rebel against him. Say, can I figure that all out? If I see somebody sin who claims to be a Christian, they sin real bad, can I just judge them? No, because I don't know. God sees their heart. He knows. I just let God deal with that. But we have to take verse 8 seriously. Those who are not Christians will stand before God based upon who they are, not based upon who they are in Jesus. And so if they're cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, etc., they will stand before God that way and be lost without hope. And if that is true, what should we do? God did call us, did he not, to spread the gospel to the whole world? Of course, that includes this part of West Virginia. It includes Honduras, we talked about earlier. It includes everywhere. And so the, the sphere of influence that God has given you, you are responsible to share your faith the best way that you can. The church must take a stand when heaven and hell is at stake. And it is at stake. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let's take as many people there as we can. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your written word. I pray that you might speak to our hearts through these words. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be different because we have encountered them. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.